Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bitcoin in Asia from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm John Riggins, and we're actually in South Africa this week after some newsworthy M&A there involving Luno and DCG. Our guest is Chris Becker, Blockchain Technologies Lead at InvestTech based out of Johannesburg. InvestTech is a commercial investment bank with significant presence in South Africa, and Chris started their blockchain practice in 2016. He talks about Bitcoin in South Africa in that time frame, giving some context for DCG's recent acquisition of Luno, the landscape of Bitcoin companies in South Africa and trends that he sees in adoption there, and Austrian economics in the context of fiscal and monetary policy in South Africa and around the world. It's a good conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Additionally, support for this podcast comes from Paxful. At Paxful, they believe that Bitcoin is more than just digital currency. It's a new way of life. It's going to completely disrupt the global financial system. Paxful is a people-powered marketplace for money transfers with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Using over 300 different payment methods, you can buy and sell Bitcoin using bank transfers, cash, and even gift cards. With borderless transactions, the ability to start a business, and opportunities for social good, Paxful is set to change the world. Create an account today to get your free Bitcoin wallet and begin trading right away. You'll never look at your money the same way again. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you. Good to be be with you, John. Thanks for having me, man. For sure. So for those who don't know you yet, can you give kind of a a brief intro of who you are and invest tech and what y'all do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a macro strategist by, well, that's what I used to do professionally. Was an economist and macro strategist for about 10 years from 2008 through to 2017. Uh, was doing sell side research. So, in other words, for our, for our institutional stock brokerage business at Investec, uh, which is a commercial bank and investment bank, I was basically doing macro strategy research to our asset management clients. And doing a lot of work on the credit risk side. The, the areas that I focused on for a couple of years was African economies and frontier market economies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became interested in the kind of intersection of frontier technologies, specifically monetary technologies and frontier markets. And so when I started, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle started fitting together for me there around 2016, I motivated to the bank that, that we needed a function, a role focusing specifically on these blockchain technologies. And so that's what I've been doing since then. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that kind of intersection that would certainly bring you to Bitcoin eventually. It, it took you there pretty early, actually. You know, we have a lot of amateur economists in the space, so it's, it's good to talk to someone who's been, been there professionally, too. So Investec, Commercial and Investment Bank, I guess, can you, can you talk a little bit more about kind of Bitcoin specifically? You made that kind of call in, in 2016. This new position organization was created inside the bank. Can you talk a little bit about how you see Bitcoin being relevant to your client base today? some of those kind of conversations that you're having, uh, you know, four years after 2016? Yeah, look, so, so our client base is unique. So basically, Investec, we operate in South Africa, also the UK and Australia, as well as Mauritius. Um, but in South Africa specifically, we, we um, focus, the division that I'm in is the private banking business. Mm-hmm. And we focused on very high net worth clients. So we have quite a small client base, around 90,000 clients in total down here in South Africa, but all high net worths. And so the, the, typical, the typical client has disposable income and he's able to take risk in some of these new, new assets, you know, things that are mm-hmm. easier to traditional bank. So what we saw in our sort of client base was a reasonable amount of activity around crypto assets and Bitcoin, you know, funds flowing to exchanges, doing arbitrage trade and these sorts of things. You know, obviously we, we needed to do quite a bit of work 
getting people comfortable with having a division that focuses on these new assets, yeah, these prices. Um, obviously, Bitcoin got a bit of a bad rep around 2012-13 with the Silk Road and all sorts of things around that. And your your more senior bankers didn't like the reputation that it had. So we had to do a lot of work internally with compliance just to understand the asset, to find out how the flow of funds work, to, to, go to, to kind of get a grip on that, to see whether there's anything we could do for clients to add value for them in this ecosystem you know, with, with something like Bitcoin. And what we really started realizing that is that as a bank, as Investec, we're operating across the world in multiple currencies, depending on the jurisdiction that we're in. In fact, in Mauritius, um, it's different to South Africa. You know, the bank operates on, on multiple currencies, whereas in South Africa, it's really just rand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're not really constrained as a bank in, in terms of what currencies you operate with. And so if you, if, you, if you agree then that Bitcoin is just a new currency, you just need to find a way to bank on top of it, really. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've been exploring in the last few years. Yeah, cool. I guess the news item out of South Africa, one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you this week was news of Luno kind of being acquired by DCG, one of their early investors, you know, based in New York, obviously. That happened, but, but first, kind of Bitcoin in South Africa a little bit more generally. Can you kind of help us, kind of give us some context for adoption of Bitcoin in South Africa, kind of what the media narratives have been, what they are now, just a little bit of context? Yeah, look, so South Africans generally have become increasingly distrusting of the state. And so what you tend to see here, and also in other African countries, is that theme. And then then as a result of that, what you tend to see is people looking for alternatives, looking for hedges to the currency, looking for ways to protect their savings and wealth. And so as a result of that, you see it's, you know, you, you can gauge interest from South Africans towards Bitcoin by looking at the level of, of Google searches for Bitcoin. And South Africa and Nigeria ranks really highly in the world in terms of Google searches. So interest okay. is high. Uh, yeah. there's, there's this sort of this environment where adoption happens more easily here. We have a pretty sophisticated financial system. So it's not like people need it necessarily, but people are just interested to get connected up to some of these new networks and systems. So I'd say that's the one thing. And then the the the, the Bitcoin business landscape has also obviously come in leaps and bounds. You know, Luno back in 2013, I think they were one of the first Bitcoin exchanges in SA. At the time, they were called BitX. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, becoming a client. I, I can't remember if, exactly if it was 2013 or 14. Okay, yeah. But at the time, you had to basically download like a legal agreement. There was a stack of papers that you had to go through and physically sign and Kind of scan and send back to them to get onboarded as the client. Yeah. I thought to myself, like, no, this is just too much of a mission. Like, who's going to do this? This isn't going to work. It's too much admin and too much friction. But the way, the the rate at which things have evolved to remove friction from these businesses in South Africa has been tremendous. And so it's much easier for people to get onboarded into the space. And that's obviously what we're seeing. I would also add specifically what we've seen since March is the government here implemented quite a harsh lockdown and more stringent than most countries in the world. Uh, that's had some dire economic consequences. And so we're also seeing people questioning the, the sort of the value of the RAND, which is the local currency over the longer term. And as a result, we've seen quite a big uptick of adoption, client onboardings to businesses, crypto exchanges and the like. 
Uh, and trading volumes have also spiked around three, four hundred percent on on the bigger crypto exchanges in South Africa. Mm. So yeah, there's there's definitely an adoption that's taking place down here. So you're uh, private banking clients. You are seeing an uptick right now, actually, and and people interested in I guess, stores of value, Bitcoin being one potential there. Is there? Yeah, just, yeah, that's not specifically just our client base, but also activity on the exchanges as well. So more mm -hmm. generally, outside of just what I can see inside the bank, uh, yeah. there, there's a very strong uptick. Cool. And then kind of the regulatory situation for Bitcoin. Can you give us some color there? Has there been much debate around it? Is it, is it set in stone? What's the, you know, your, your bank is treating Bitcoin kind of as another currency. How does the government in South Africa see it? Yeah, so uh, the so you know the, the government's diverse. There've been many regulatory bodies, but but sure. they've been really proactive in trying to understand this 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 ecosystem, crypto assets generally. The South African Reserve Bank, which is our central bank, set up basically a fintech team a couple of years ago, and started with some with some really good people who have been getting a handle on this asset, and they put out a few papers. They also recently created a body called the Intergovernmental Fintech Working Group. Or the IFWG, which is comprised of the the central bank, the sort of banking regulators at the central bank, the, the authorities who manage exchange control, which we have down here, the tax authorities, the conduct authorities, all these regulatory bodies are part of it. And they've actually set up a regulatory sandbox where any incumbent businesses or even new innovative businesses launching products where their regulatory gray areas are able to move into in order to launch these products to market but get some level of regulatory exemption to, to you know, prevent getting fines and stuff. So mm -hmm. they've been quite proactive. They've been really good to try and move the ecosystem along. But, you know, compared to the rate at which blockchain and crypto assets and Bitcoin generally is moving, it's not at the same pace. So you mm -hmm. continuously see this dislocation. But, yeah, there's been great stuff that's been taking place, you know. So it's been encouraging to see. I would add the one big issue that we have that's an issue to starting up businesses that do cryptocurrencies is we have exchange control. And obviously, Bitcoin doesn't care about borders. And so when you have exchange control, there's a lot of uncertainty around what you can and can't do. You know, even if you're, if you're a custodial, you know, you're doing Bitcoin custody as a business, but you're inside South Africa and you're managing the keys from South Africa, the regulators are, are angling to call that an offshore asset. Even Interesting. So there's some issues that need to be ironed out around there, create some uncertainty. And I think it does slow things down to an extent. But again, the, the exchange control regulators are also like trying to understand this and trying to put some frameworks in place just to give people clarity and comfort, you know, to invest and do business. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And when you say exchange controls, what does that what does that encompass exactly? It's capital controls on money leaving South Africa specifically, or is it what is the cap on that right now? So, so it depends who you are. So if you're an individual, you can take out a million rand, which is less than $100,000, freely without having to ask for permission to externalize that capital. So in other words, if you want to sell rands to buy dollars to be able to invest offshore, you can only take a million rand offshore sort of frictionlessly. But then mm -hmm. if you exceed that, you can go up to 11 million rand in total, but you have to basically ask for permission from the tax authorities to do that. Again, a lot of friction around doing that. If you start up a business in South Africa, let's say you want to start up a crypto exchange and you want to receive funding through some new uh, you know, instruments like safe agreements, those aren't recognized yet and you can't bring the capital into the country either. Interesting, okay. 
yeah. So, so it's really just to try and manage capital inside the country, inflows, outflows. It's, yeah. it's challenging. And what has, what has inflation been, I guess, a, a reported inflation been over the last couple of years in South Africa and the RAND this year? What's, what's it looking like? So our central bank targets an inflation rate of between 3 to 6%. Historically, they sort of hug the upper bound. You know, they, mm-hmm. they around 5%. Yeah, 3 to 6, that's a nice little range. Like <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite, yeah, it's a, it's a big range. And then they hug the top end of that. So the currency has depreciated significantly over the last few decades. Yeah. relative to dollar and gold and so on. At the moment, the inflation rate measuring the increase of consumer prices is cruising around 3% per year. It's around there. Yeah, okay. Thanks for all that all that context. And then to, to Luno. So come, come a little bit of a ways since you tried to set up a, an account there in 2013 when it was under a different name. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about kind of the background of the exchange, maybe a little bit of that exchange kind of competitive landscape too? and how it's developed over the last those last seven years, just some color for who Luno is and, and how they're seen in South Africa, I guess. Yeah, so, I mean, Luno has been the has been kind of the, the standard, I would say, as a crypto exchange in South Africa. It was, was one of the first. It grew um, pretty rapidly. They obviously re- rebranded to Luno a couple of years ago. I can't, exactly, I can't remember exactly when that was, um, but they're pretty trusted. You know, they got good, good investment uh, backing early mm-hmm. on. From the likes of NASPARS and Rand Merchant Investments, which is also an investment bank's investment arm, a very reputable investment bank. I didn't realize that NASPARS had invested. Yeah, they just exited now, I think, mm, gotcha. with this, this this DCG deal. Yeah, and they grew very strongly. I mean, they were just they were just solid. You know, never never too many issues. They were good on client support. There was great liquidity and volumes. They really focused on the on the Bitcoin Rand pair. And they were never quick to add other pairs, currency pairs, to the to the exchange. I think mm-hmm. even now, at the moment, they, they only have four or five pairs on the exchange. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a market for Bitcoin Rand, XRP Rand, and also ETH Rand. I do you think they did add BCH as well, not so long ago, but I speak mm-hmm. under correction. And so they were good. They were solid. They grew fast, had a lot of clients, obviously expanded into Africa. So they also played into that remittance theme, you know, for people wanting to move capital between places around Africa, they were there, and people trusted them. And things have obviously shaken up a bit, I think, especially in the last year when a team of guys from an investment bank left and formed Valor.com, built a really slick platform, competed really hard with Luna on fees, fees yeah. you know, and kind of came in aggressively. And they also were yeah. a bit more liberal, if I can call it that, in, in the number of cryptocurrencies <laughs> that were added to the platform. Uh-huh. Uh, so you had this huge selection, like 50 cryptos that people could trade, buy and sell. Something, something that's been important and competitiveness of exchanges all over the place. It seems like the ones yeah. that have been more you know, fast fad things have seen that, that better retail growth, just to your point. So Vala came in, I think about a year ago, just over a year ago, they started their RAND Bitcoin book and they've grown really rapidly. So you've got quite a nice equal footing of two big players and then a, then, a, then a variety of smaller players, but really Luna and Valor are the dominant guys. So it'll be interesting to see how with the DCG investment, how, how they begin to move and what products they begin to add, you know, just to try and make, if you can call it a bit of a comeback locally. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And then Valor, I guess the way that the Luna is set up, it's not, a, maybe it's not technically a South African company and Valor is, it's based, based in, I guess, uh, Johannesburg. Yeah, yeah, it is. No, Luna has um, been really successful, obviously, at expanding offshore and internalizing IP in the business. 
to make this investment more attractive. But I think it does give the local crypto industry a lot of lot of credibility and legitimacy, uh, not only in the eyes of, of international investors, but also local local financial industry. Yeah, that's interesting. Because we haven't really seen a ton of M&A on the African continent of, of Bitcoin companies. It's maybe the first, really one of the first kind of noteworthy plays on that front. And Luno, I mean, it sounds like it was made because of that base of customers in South Africa. And you, know, you mentioned offshore IP and whatnot, but I guess the, the real differentiator for Luno, it seems like is that uh, the hold that it has had in South Africa. Any, any color for, for that setup and kind of as companies think about maybe entering, entering markets in Africa, maybe South Africa specifically, the way Luno did it, you know, obviously that was seven years ago, but you know, in Valor's South African grown and, and located, are you seeing any other kind of trends on that front of companies entering Africa versus starting homegrown there? Is there any other color on that? It's kind of a, a roundabout way of asking it a simple question. <laughs> I, I don't see. Yeah, look, I'm not. I'm not in the sort of investment side of things. So I'm not a VC guy myself. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I don't have a really. I don't have really good insights on these sort of dynamics and trends. But I mean, I'm not seeing many international crypto businesses coming here to set up shop. What I see of local businesses, there's obviously a big focus in, in moving abroad to capture a bigger market, whether it's mm. Africa or Asia, other markets. There, there's a focus around ensuring that IP can be externalized so that you're not caught up in exchange controls when you want to get investments eventually. Yeah, yeah makes so sense. Any other kind of color on, I guess, the customer base, maybe one of the, the main reasons for the, for the purchase? You've, you've kind, of, kind of gone through the competitive aspect of Luno at first dollar. Uh, any sense of level of of that customer base? Is it pretty much retail, some institutional? Like when y'all talk when y'all talk to private banking clients, maybe maybe you can't get into specifically your clients, but when you talk to people who are buying Bitcoin, trading Bitcoin, where do you see kind of the the high net worth folks going, the institutional side, hedge funds and whatnot? Any color on that? So in SA, so there's two things I want to kind of touch on. The first thing yeah. is our regulators here have been basically trying to keep institutions away from this asset class for now. Mm. So they don't really want to see institutional facing business for crypto happening just yet. And that comes back to exchange control exchange control concerns that they have. So they're gotcha. concerned that if institutions start getting into the space, you're going to see much larger amounts of outflows taking place, outflows into crypto. And they don't have a handle on it and it's harder to control. And so they've really been trying to push back institutions from getting involved. Institutions, of course, are able to get involved because they are allowed to invest offshore. So typically, they'll go to custodians and exchanges offshore. So Fidelity Investments would be one, Gemini, Coinbase, these yeah, who they would deal with. I think because you can, you can see this, or mostly institutions will see this as a foreign currency, they would also like to isolate sovereign risk from South Africa and, you know, have these assets custodies offshore too. So that's kind of the, the trend you're seeing from us. We're not really seeing corporates involved with the stuff, but businesses are setting up. I'm seeing a lot of activity in businesses who want to facilitate individuals and help individuals to trade the arbitrage, offshore, onshore Bitcoin arbitrage. Okay. And I've seen quite a bit of interest in international businesses here too. So how this, how this works is the price of Bitcoin offshore in dollars is 5% lower than it is here when you factor in your FX conversions and costs of converting into Forex. Mm -hmm. So as an individual, or as anyone really, you can, you, can, you can sell rands, buy dollars, deposit it into, let's say, a Kraken account, 
buy Bitcoin, transfer it back to Luna, and sell it for a five, six percent profit, just about net of fees. Mm-hmm. It's a very attractive flow. But but again, the regulators don't want businesses engaging in that because they don't understand this flow dynamic. So they right. said, look, individuals can do it if you stick within your exchange control allowances. But it's quite sophisticated and it's a bit tricky for people to get involved in trading if they've never traded in their lives. For sure. Now you want to ask them to start trading crypto and deposit and withdraw from Kraken in these places is, is kind of risky and hard to do. So we're seeing a lot of businesses setting up to facilitate that flow for individuals and to make it easy. Yeah, interesting. So, so we've seen a lot of activity around that. Yeah. I think BitPace has played in that uh, kind of space over their history too. Yeah. I guess maybe back to invest tech a little bit. So you're heading up essentially the product and strategy on the crypto side there, on the blockchain side there. I believe you all have some custody. You've been working on some custody things. Talk a little bit about, a bit about that, how you're thinking about kind of product inside the bank. You mentioned kind of custody is something that people have been going outside of that South Africa for a little bit. Just talk about your strategy there, how you're thinking about it. Yeah. So, so like I was saying, if, yeah, if you're a bank and you can just view this as another currency mm-hmm. and you're not offer these technologies to clients, and whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or even stable, that's the, the, the primary thing that you use to connect to a blockchain. And so what we've been working on is, is a very agnostic, asset agnostic custodial solution, which we built. And we announced in March at the Blockchain Africa conference that we built this and we're ready to start testing this, you know, with the, with the clients. So a small number of staff clients just to start testing these capabilities and then to work with regulators around solving some of the regulatory gray areas that they have question marks over that we think we've solved for in order to demonstrate that it would be possible for a bank to get involved in this as they do with any other currency. Um, you know, there's some quirks around this technology, but the minute you get a handle on that, the remit and capabilities of banks to get involved. And obviously what's been really helpful to us has been the US Office of the Comptroller of the Currency a couple of months ago came out and gave federal, I think it's federal banks and thrifts, basically the green light to do digital asset custody too. And so what we see from regulators here is they look to industry for guidance, players like us, but also the the crypto incumbents like Luna and Van. And also look to the Bank Sorry. of International Settlements and the SEC and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Yeah, so I was saying as, as the, the guidance comes out from abroad, it gives us legitimacy and a bit more momentum to move forward on projects like this. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting that we've been able to, to, to get to the point that we're at. And we're looking forward to obviously bringing something to the market soon. For sure. All interesting stuff. Good stuff. And then kind of timing on that, when you can bring it to the market, would it, or, or all, uh, I'm sure you're in discussions, uh, you know, continually with the powers that be. Any kind of thoughts on when this is coming? Uh, yeah, I, I don't actually know. I wish I, wish I could say there's, there's testing that needs to happen. Um, there's internal processes that need to be closed off. Um, so there's quite a bit of stuff that still needs to happen, but hopefully hopefully soon. You know, soon in a, in a banking context, especially now, uh, <laughs> is not what it used to be either, you know, so, so it's hard to say. For sure. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing, just a bit of color from, from inside a bank is the, the, there's, the interesting diverge, there's this interesting divergence of opinion and view on these, on these technologies as well as the assets. What you find is in the technology community at a, at a bank, 
is there's a lot of interest and appetite to get involved in these these things. And mm-hmm. um, whereas on the on the on the banker side, there's less understanding of technology uh, and how these new systems work. And so you get this 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 tremendous conflict and tension the whole time. Um, yeah. Which is why you typically see fintechs adopting these things faster and the tech players moving into the space more quickly. And so we've had to do a, a lot of work to get the, the banking fraternity inside the bank. Make sure <laughs> comfortable with this stuff and how it all works. For sure, for sure. Thanks a couple uh, of years, but you, know, you get there. Yeah, I mean, four years ago is when you, you kind of pushed this, this internal initiative. Oh, we're going to it. So you're seeing traction internally in terms of how open people are. You're seeing traction externally in terms of trading volumes, high net worth folks uh, wanting to get into, at least get some exposure to Bitcoin. Any other color on kind of the Bitcoin, the system, the ecosystem of Bitcoin companies in South Africa? Anything else you're bullish on? Anyone else worth, anyone, anyone else of note that you'd kind of hold up and say, hey, these, these guys are doing some some interesting stuff as well? On Bitcoin specifically, it's it's gone quite quiet. Eh? I haven't seen a lot of activity around Bitcoin specifically. You know, there was some talk of players doing, uh, building Lightning network integrations and on-ramps, but that's gone kind of quiet. You know, Lightning started off pretty rapidly and grew quickly to, I think, 30,000 channels or something two years ago, but it, it seems to have gone quiet. And mm-hmm. what I have seen happening is is quite a bit of developer mindshare moving across onto Ethereum and some of the applications. And there's been some success stories locally around that. There's a guy by the name of Andre Cronier who built Yearn.Finance out of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he released it to the market in July, he released the governance token. And within 48 days, I think it hit a billion dollar market cap. And so, so yeah, there's some, some interesting stories like that that's coming out, you know. Not a lot of companies that I'm seeing being registered, but a lot of people, these smart contracting systems give people the ability to register businesses on the chain and to operate in a sort of parallel dimension, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing a lot of interest going there. Interesting. You know, it seems like South Africa maybe was a was one of the places that consensus made a big push to develop an Ethereum ecosystem there, hired some local people. Any thoughts on kind of the the importance of that kind of focused outreach versus kind of the more, you know, distributed nature of, of Bitcoins, kind of the push for Bitcoin. Yeah, so look, I'll say that Consensus basically did the project for the Reserve Bank. So what we did a couple of years ago is we tokenized the RAND on Quorum, which is their private blockchain. I don't know what's happened with that since the JP Morgan deal, but on this private chain, we tokenized the RAND to basically demonstrate the ability to create a new settlement system that's decentralized on Ethereum, on a private Ethereum chain. And Consensus basically drove that project. I think it was two years ago. And what they did was it gave the the regulatory bodies quite a bit more understanding of how Ethereum works, what's useful for, you know, how transactions will get processed and Mm -hmm. how, how the ecosystem and the various things fit together. And so as a result of that, I see inherently increased levels of comfort with Ethereum. Interesting. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Whereas, you know, with Bitcoin, very decentralized, you don't quite know who to talk to to understand it. You know, who can you trust? You know, who are the authorities on it? And so, so, it's, a, so it's quite a different dynamic. You know? And that doesn't mean to say, obviously, that, that Bitcoin is not important. It obviously, is. it's still the most important asset. But there's a level of comfort with 
Ethereum and some of the ecosystem um, that consensus was able to bring. You know, they also hired like uh, Monica Singer, as you mentioned a few hires. Monica Singer was the CEO of Strait, which is our central securities depository, like a very important financial institution in SA. And, and, and she was CEO of, of that, I think, for 30 years. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and so she's extremely well known amongst the C-level execs uh, in the financial services industry. And she was able to communicate with these people too and tell them about Ethereum and how it works and smart contracts and all this kind of stuff. So you automatically just see like a sort of increased level of adoption and uptake and comfort yeah. amongst people. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's seen as, you know, our CEO who's, who's actually left the bank used to joke with me and, and like kind of look under the table and said, who are these Bitcoin miners? Who are they? Who are they? You know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But whereas with Ethereum, you kind of start putting faces to the thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. And and that comes with the whole set of trade-offs, obviously. And I know you're a Bitcoiner and that's why you're in the game here. I think you may have, from kind of the economist side, back to that a little bit, you may have started uh, maybe a Mises Institute in South Africa or or run the one there. Talk a little bit about that, how you're, just kind of how you think about economics, I guess. Yeah, so when 2009 happened, I was just starting off as an economist. Like I'd started in 2008. And uh, I was doing African markets and macro. The, the the crash obviously happened, and it caught everybody off guard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what, what what's going on here? This how, how does everybody get something this big so wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and I became really curious around what I'd been taught about economics at university, and started asking questions. And consistently saw an explanation and a predictive ability from people that constantly led me back to the Austrian school of economics. And so I started getting into the Austrian school and I went on to Mises.org and, you know, reading the books and just immersed myself in the theory of the Austrian school. And so in 2011, at that point, I was pretty much just gold. Gold is the solution. Gold is going to solve <laughs> the financial and currency problems. You have to go back to a gold standard and the gold price is going to have to reset, reset dramatically higher to sort of balance the book, so to speak. And it was also around that time when, when a friend and I um, st- founded, founded the Mises Institute South Africa, uh, which was really just, you know, a small kind of passion project to start a think tank to get people to understand what the Austrian School of Economics is about. Obviously, a big uh, sort of an important principle of the Austrian School of Economics is to firstly have sound, sound money, um, so a currency that's not corruptible and debasable by anyone. And so that's where the gold angle kind of came in is this market money that couldn't be debased. Competition. So if you had competition amongst monies, the Hayekian argument in his book, The Denationalization of Money, there would be incentives that would always lead the soundest or the scarcest monies to be the most valuable and in the most demand and as a result, would become the standard for money. And so with those, with that sort of way of thinking and of analyzing the world and business cycles and currency systems and fiat fractional banking and all of these things, that's where I became interested in Bitcoin. That's what led me to it. But initially, I'm not a tech guy, so I couldn't get it immediately. <laughs> and I, in, in principle, I was like, no, this is a good idea, but I've got to sign up with Bitex, which is now Luna, and I've got to print out these documents <laughs> and sign a legal agreement in order to buy this. And then at that point, there weren't uh, like wallets. You, you know, you couldn't have sure. a wallet on your device. I had to spin up a node at home. My wife said to me, like, no, you, you're not, um, you know, you're not going to use a room to spin up nodes on my <laughs> I just thought to myself, this isn't going to work. 
Like this can't really work as well. So what I what I kind of overlooked at the time was the technical piece and how easy it would be to innovate for anyone to build applications to make this thing better, more useful, and to reduce friction. Mm-hmm. And so when I kind of came back to it again, and I started noticing, well, hang on a second, I didn't I didn't realize how quickly this ecosystem would would evolve and become more efficient and more useful. That's when I realized, okay. I think, I think it might be Bitcoin over gold. And I started understanding the trade-offs between digital gold and something like Bitcoin, which doesn't need collateral. It is the collateral asset. You know, it is the bearer instrument. Mm-hmm. And so it was, so, so the Austrian School of Economics was incredibly helpful to leading me down this path of, of getting involved with Bitcoin and, and crypto more generally. Yeah, good color there. Your, your mind was right. I'm just talking about Bitcoin standard now. How is gold regulated in South Africa? Is it easy to move? Kind of gold in and out is a similar, I guess, it's same thing in terms of capital controls, I guess. Just thinking about some of these, uh, I guess we've had some headlines. Interestingly, gold, you know, the Kruger Rand obviously comes from, from SA. It's like the, the standard for gold coins around the world. I don't know that. In huge demand. Uh, it's actually still legal tender in SA. So you can go, you know, it's, it's legal tender. So you can use it as a medium of exchange at a point mm. of sale. You know, mm. And people would have to accept it. Obviously, you don't do it because a Kruger Rand's worth a lot, and you're not going to yeah. buy your groceries with it. But the central bank here, and because it's legal tender, will at any point in time, if you show up at their door and you want to sell them Kruger Rand's, they'll they'll pay you out spot price for for those Kruger Rand's. Interesting. So it's quite a cool bit of history around Kruger Rand's. There, there's a bit of innovation going on. Uh, there's one fintech called Troy Gold specifically, who's mm-hmm. digitizing. And giving people the ability to basically spend that. You know, use it and because it's digitized gold, it, it's automatically going to be adopted as legal tender? Or is, 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 there, is there a discussion around that? Yes, exactly. Interesting. That's the exactly, yeah. yeah. And the price, so and the price is, it, is it floating or is it pegged to the rand somehow? Is, no, is the so floating. It's floating. Yeah. So if, thankfully, we still have a floating exchange rate. So, so the price of crispy rands in SA um, is is basically just the rand conversion of, you know, the, the the spot gold market offshore. It's fixed to the London bullion market. So I think twice daily the price is fixed. And if you walk into a sort of Kruger rand coin, many coin shops where you can go and buy and sell these things, you basically pay whatever the the, the most recent fix was. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, they also don't charge tax on Kruger rands. That's obviously a discussion that's also going to be happening soon is around tax on crypto. You know, so like if you buy Kruger Rands because it's legal tender, there's not, that doesn't apply to Kruger Rands. But if you want to buy silver, you pay tax. So there's a 15% markup on it. Now, it would obviously be problematic for Bitcoin if Bitcoin was treated like silver. You know, mm-hmm. and 15% fact is going to be added on. It's kind of not an active discussion at this point. We're going to have to see where it goes. I think the, the tax authorities are really just trying to get a handle on how to keep tabs on, on profits in crypto mm-hmm. you know, and to make sure that people are paying their taxes. And so hopefully that discussion around VAT is further off in the future. You know, We'll have to see. Yeah, interesting. That tax discussion, I guess it's probably a little bit more of timely thing, I guess, with the impact of COVID maybe in South Africa and, and government revenues there. I guess any color on how you mentioned it was more of a harsh lockdown, more of a, I guess, strictly enforced lockdown than some other places in the world. Where does it sit now? Is it, and the impact of that on South African business, inflation, Bitcoin, you've touched on it a little bit, but any kind of final thoughts on on that front, COVID's impact? 
Yeah, look, I th- the, the impact on the economy has been pretty severe. I think the, the GDP number that came out a couple of weeks ago showed that the economy contracted at an annualized rate of 50% in the second quarter. I think the third quarter is going to be could be just as bad. We're still in levels, we still have stages of lockdown, so I think we've just moved to stage one. But there's just so many restrictions on activities still. It's kind of hard to see just how much things will, will rebound. I think the big, the bigger impact's been on government finances. So government finances have been, you can say, fragile leading into this. Uh, and this may push things over the edge. And I think that's why there's increased interest in, in things like Bitcoin too. Um, because obviously if you have a fiscal crisis, uh, which I think may be quite likely in the next few years, it obviously mm-hmm. has negative consequences for the RAND. You know, a bit of context into why I moved into this space too is with my sort of knowledge of, of high inflation and hyperinflation environments in African countries, you know, we had a hyperinflation in Zimbabwe just north of our borders not so long ago. Yeah. Um, these things can happen quickly and, and, and it can unravel. And I think the, the promise of Bitcoin in an environment like this is that hyperinflations are never going to be the same as before. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly you have an alternative that you can move into seamlessly that runs on the, the internet that's electronic, where you can kind of hedge yourself and you can continue to transact in a value that's reasonably stable, even if your local currency is unhinged and extremely unstable. Um, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, just to watch things play out here and even in other African countries over the next decade to see how Bitcoin might come in to solve some of these macro problems that create like systemic crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, where communities can potentially pick up a new currency like Bitcoin and start transacting in that to be able to store value, store the value of their savings, to transact with each other in order not to go down that, that hyperinflationary or high inflation slope. That is one of the one of the miracles of Bitcoin and that the potential that is, is real. It's going to be interesting to watch. Any kind of predictions on on that, on, on Bitcoin, I guess just overall predictions, broad predictions on Bitcoin. Have, have anything for us for the next year, two years? what it looks like. Obviously, everyone's kind of on the same page. They're entering a, a bull market here. What do you see happening in South Africa, maybe? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, we're going to be led by what's happening in the world, you know, so so those, mm-hmm. and I think the themes are very similar. We might just be a few years further down the road of, of you know, concern around the local currency and the, and the levels of inflation that we might see. I think those things might come sooner. And that's, like we said earlier, that's why we see sort of higher levels of adoption amongst the public for Bitcoin. I am however starting to see more institutions here um, getting interested, um, which is the same thing that we're seeing abroad, you know, with, with banks getting more comfortable and institutional investors getting in micro strategy buying how many hundred millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the things that are going to move the needle that, that kind of feeds back into SA that gives people more comfort and more conviction that they need to be getting involved here. That's obviously tying in with the theme of political tension around the world and the sort of centralized states basically beginning to come apart at the seams, decentralized technologies fitting into that nicely. And obviously central banks are just looking to go more deeply negative and create more liquidity to try and keep the economy kind of chugging along. I think these big themes are going to come together to just drive big wave of adoption. So I'm pretty bullish, you know, personally. I think some of the predictions that are out there for for a good like 10x return on Bitcoin in the next three years, I think seem quite fair. You know? 
very very comfortably and it'll be interesting to see what other themes kind of come into that you know the last the last cycle you saw things like ICOs coming in it's going to be interesting to see what else comes in I'm surprised at some of the crypto assets that are still in the top 10 like Litecoin and XRP and Monero and some of these things I'm not too sure what they're used for and who's connecting up to those networks because most of what I see is interest in Bitcoin and mm-hmm. interest in Ethereum and DeFi and I'm not seeing a lot else. So I'm quite interested to see how the cycle plays out. But, you know, I'm not going to make any predictions on that for now. But I think Bitcoin stays dominant, does well, sees a lot of corporate and institutional interest as a result of all these dislocations macro and politically around the world. Uh, bullish, but but also measured. I think you're pretty spot on with yeah. overall narrative. And then finally, kind of a fun one to close out, just a, a recommendation. It can be kind of a restaurant, food, something to see culturally, NSA for people who haven't been or maybe looking to get, get over there at some point after this pandemic has uh, gotten through. Recommendation for SA. Oh, man. I think people need to go to Cape Town. People need to see the Cape, Table Mountain. Yeah. Going to the winelands, check out our wine farms and the mountains there. It's it's a beautiful place. The garden route is amazing. Incredible beaches, really good golfing. This movie, I don't know if you saw it on Netflix. This this my octopus teacher was also filmed on on the coast here in Cape Town. <laughs> uh, is that the one there's some, there some controversy about in the last couple of days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I saw that too. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, okay. Um, so yeah, those are good things to see. And then, you know, if people are out here, they need to also get to one of our game reserves. We've got incredible game reserves in the north. So the Cape Town coastal regions are quite different to the, the northern uh, high felt where you get your elephants and lions and giraffes and the, the big five, you know. So people need to come up and see that as well. All right. Great recommendations. Cape Town, beautiful Cape Town and game reserves in the north. Good stuff. Well, Chris, thanks for your time. Really enjoyed talking and we'll have to do this again when there's more to talk about in SA. Right, John. Good talking. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man. Quick reminder, all of the content in this episode is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments.